3: well you know i just i don't know sophie i i think that you're kind of being unfair when you say the audience is is just terrible people and you hate them and you want to throw boiling water from a cast iron skillet on them i don't know that that's fair sophie that seems kind of mean to me
4: but robert i was reading i would never say that that was a direct quote from your diary i that was those weren't my words that's what you said
3: sophie you can't prove that I mean, in it's in. It was in your
4: blog. Yeah. Well,
3: you, who knows? What's a blog? That, it was a Zanga
5: site. I remember. I followed you. Wow.
3: Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, uh,
4: I, feel, I feel.
3: attacked <laughs> in my own podcast. No. My own podcast <laughs> that I built with my own two hands. Unbelievable.
4: <laughs> um. Our, our welcome guest, to behind the yeah, bastards. I was going to say our guest is Samantha Bigvee. The podcast icon. where I,
3: <laughs> Robert Evans, am slandered to a terrible degree, unfairly,
4: despite (laughs) having
3: never done anything wrong. Ever. Hello, Samantha. I would never. How are you doing, Samantha McVeigh?
5: Hello. (laughs) I know, again, I aged myself with the Zango reference, so Mm -hmm. I know people are going to be like, oh my God, what is wrong with you?
3: Oh yeah, we're all Um, old as hell. Everybody here is old as shit.
5: You're welcome. I'm really glad to throw it back this early.
3: Yeah. Samantha, what's, what's, what is...
4: That's that's your whole that's your whole question whats whats What is and what is how yeah, what is it?
3: what what is, but how is it? Yeah, exactly. How is what and what is how? Is there an that's answer? The question. There never was. That's good. Are, you,
4: are you asking if she's the host of a podcast called Stuff Mom Never Told You on this? Video? Is she? A, yeah. Bo- yeah. It,
3: well, it, is she? See, this is Sophie. why I keep
4: you around, Sophie. Yeah. I know that you've got this better than I do. Yeah, this has been you a really great introduction a Cause, cause for I all guarantee our fans. Robert would never have gotten there. Never. I would have gotten there. (laughs) It's not. I I
3: I love our audience. I love all of everybody. You love about forty percent
4: of them, statistically speaking.
3: So this is a podcast. It's about bad people. Normally, we're doing a little bit of a different thing today, Samantha. And I and I brought you on. I brought you on because, as I can tell right now, you exist in a black void based on your I am a black void. And I assume that that's what goes on in the heart of anybody who understands math.
5: I feel like that was racist. Is that racist because I'm Asian? Like, is whoa, what whoa. What? It's, because
3: you're li- it's because you exist within a black void.
5: <laughs> oh, OK, OK.
3: I didn't, that was the I didn't say anything about you being and Asian. Or. Whoa, Jesus. You're welcome. This no, is how we were going we, to start the have, show. So, More slander like obviously if for the people listening to this podcast there's a pretty good chance they're renters uh they're about 30 renti- renters are about 36 percent of households nationwide or a renter's head 36 percent of households nationwide mm-hmm. um although those numbers are a couple of years old I don't know if it's that was like pre-pandemic um do you rent or do you own Samantha
5: I now officially, own because you oh, we were kind of pushed out from the rental that I had because yeah. he went up by, I uh, want to say 40% on our
3: rent. Jesus Christ. Over, yeah, so yeah, you have been that's, we're talking today about why the rent is so damn high. Um, oh, and some of the people go. who are responsible, we're going to try to drill into specific people whenever possible because that's our, our bit, but I am also in my first year of home ownership. I've been a renter the first 15 years of my adult life. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, I don't know about you, most of the living situations I was in were like the... Broadly criminal, like a legal, like like the the yes. landlord was breaking a law, and so my rent was cheaper. We actually uh, like had to, I've tell this story a couple times. We had to like talk a city of Los Angeles inspector out of reporting fire hazards in our apartment because we were like, dude, I live a minute and a half away from Santa Monica, and we're paying like a thousand bucks a month for a room each. Wow. Like you gotta you gotta like you gotta just keep quiet. Like we'll burn to death if we burn to death, right. bro.
4: <laughs> yeah.
5: We'll risk life or death for this situation because it's cheap.
3: Because it's cheap. Yeah yeah just cheap. um, but nothing is cheap anymore. Uh, it has no. gotten rent has gotten higher at a ridiculous rate since the pandemic in particular. not that it wasn't raising before, but it's really raised a lot. Say, as you just said, you just uh, we' about to go up forty percent year over year. in Miami and Tampa, rent is up about fifty percent of its pre-pandemic numbers. And nationwide, median rent has topped two thousand dollars a month for the first time ever,, uh, which is insane when I was, you know, a kid, 14, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago, living in my first apartment, two grand a month is like, that's a rich person's rent.
1: Yeah.
4: Right?
3: Like that's a crazy rich. But I remember going to like a friend's apartment in Manhattan that was 2,500 bucks a month and being like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Right. <laughs> i pay $700 a month for a three bedroom. Like, um, yes. Now, the the fact that median rent has topped $2,000 a month is heavily influenced by the poll of the big cities. These are very skewed numbers that may not reflect most individual people's experience because of how big some of the big cities are and how high the rent is there. So San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, et cetera, are the places that are skewing the numbers and the places where rent has surged. The most, but rent is still up basically everywhere. Uh, it is currently increasing at the fastest rate since 1986. Um, and one of the things that happened during the pandemic is we had all these people moving to cities that they thought would be a better place to live because it was remote work. Um, which helped spread out some of the increases. Um, and there was a brief period of time where evictions were tamped down on somewhat by federal rental assistance. So even though rent was rising, it, it was hard to kick people out of their houses. But that has started to run out this year. And in 2022, eviction filings hit pre-pandemic levels and in many places exceeded them greatly. Cities Does that like use- have an
4: impact? Does the impact of like what's called pandemic pricing on rent have have an influence there? Where like a lot of places, they... And especially in like big cities such as Los Angeles and New York, they were trying to fill places, so they gave a lower price, and then the next year the increase was um, offensively high.
3: Yeah. That's one of the things Speaking that's happened. Personal
4: experience. It's, it's one of the things that's
3: contributed to evictions. Some cities it's like, like Houston in particular is, is one city I know where eviction rate filings are like 200% of pre pandemic levels. Yeah, like it's right. massively higher in a lot of cities. And this is all. Yeah, fed Atlanta into, got hit a hard yes. with
5: that. And immediately as, as soon as it dropped the amount mm-hmm. of evictions that came, it was absurd and obscene.
3: Yeah. And it, and it, that that's fed into the homelessness crisis. That's, this huge political thing and also just like thing thing everywhere in the country right now. Um, and I'm it's you know kind of difficult to grok in absolute numbers how many houseless people are in encampments and other situations because those aren't easily recorded in federal and state statistics. But homelessness is surging in a number of American cities, and all of this is ancillary to the question why is the rent so damn high? Now, if you go oh to like God. the Yeah, exactly. Why is the
5: I know we're about to go down to this. There's going to be Blackhawk mentioning, Zillow mentioning, Uh Airbnb mentioning. Are we going down these
3: routes? We're going to be talking about some of these. We're going to be talking about. um, Uh, A number of those. This is, I I, want to say right now, we're not going to be, this isn't going to be a comprehensive list of all of the different things affecting rent prices. We're focusing on some particularly bastardy ones, Um, but we'll cover a lot of it. So please don't get on and be like, well, you didn't cover this or that. It's like, yeah, man, it's a a big (laughs) topic. Like, do you you want us this to all be just one boring, broad overview of problems? Or do you want us to drill into some weird, fucked up assholes, which is what we're going to do? Yeah,
5: I got time today, so let's go.
3: Yeah. So if you go to, say, the New York Times or most other big legacy publications to try to, like, you know, type into Google why is the rent so damn high, you'll get various versions of the same answer. And I'm going to quote from a New York Times article here. The origins of the current homelessness crisis go back decades to policies that stopped the U.S. from building enough housing, experts said. Seven million extremely low-income renters cannot get affordable homes, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Now, Experts like these tend to place a lot of the blame on what we call NIMBYs, which stands for not in my backyard. And it references the fact that in cities like San Francisco, there's a lot of like upper class liberal types who make it very hard to build anything besides single family housing because they don't like big buildings and they don't like being in a a, a dense urban environment. Uh, Los Angeles County devotes 76 percent of its residential land to single family homes, which is bug fuck. Uh, this leads to <laughs> sprawling cities, which also require huge road systems, lots of parking, yada, yada. And it leads to higher rent prices because there's simply less space to build housing. The New York Times also notes, quote, homeowners also often protest proposed housing, effectively blocking it. They fear that more housing, particularly for low-income families, will change the makeup of their communities or reduce the values of their home. Now, in San Francisco... For, what
5: David Chappelle did, supposedly? I know that was like a yes. small blip, and it was a misunderstanding, but he like blocked a housing pro- like
3: yeah area, right yeah he said it, they said it was a misunderstanding okay uh, okay i'm just on the opposite that, like, end of things out. george lucas built a bunch of low income housing specifically to fuck with his neighbors um, oh oh okay. hmm. his his rich Great. neighbors he, 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 he had had like noise complaint problems with his rich neighbors as a result of like the studio he ran so to fuck with them he built a bunch of low income housing in the neighborhood cuz he knew it would piss off the other rich people
5: <laughs> That's so nice of yeah, him. Yeah,
3: based George Lucas. Dot
5: dot dot. <laughs>
3: um, he's a he's a he's a perfect, unproblematic king. So <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and there's like they're not. The New York Times and stuff, they're not wrong when they say that NIMBYs are part of the problem. Uh, in San Francisco, there were recently a bunch of protests uh, to stop a project to convert a 131-room hotel in Japantown into housing for homeless people. Um, like, a bunch of shit like that happens. California has about 23 available affordable homes for every 100 extremely low-income renters, which is makes it one of the worst of any state in, in terms of that problem. Um, so they're not wrong when they say that, like— yeah the the NIMBYs are a problem people pro not Allowing like multifamily development and lots and stuff is a huge problem. And I've reluctantly come to see that like they have a point. Uh, I have, I don't want to, I don't like living in high density areas. I would prefer to live out in the woods. Um, but but this argument is broadly, broadly correct. Uh, a huge part of the problem is that there's denser cities, is that we need to have denser cities with more multifamily zoning and residential areas. However, there's also a lot of bullshit in the argument that the New York Times is making here and in this argument in general. Because the way it tends to get pushed, and it gets pushed by people like developers and by intellectuals who take on the attitude of developers because the developers are their uncles or whatever, is that all of the homelessness problem is to blame on these liberal city policies that just aren't letting developers develop enough. Um, And and while, again, zoning is a part of the issue, this analysis excises a great deal of the actual problem. For one thing, the whole we're not building enough housing thing tends to lay all the blame on zoning. And these darn nimby's, um, but one of the other problems is that like there's not actually people to build that housing. Um, this is this is a major problem in the industry, and I'm going to quote from a write up on NPR's website. By one estimate, the U.S. is more than 3 million homes short of the demand from would-be home buyers. Pandemic-related supply chain problems aren't helping. They're adding tens of thousands of dollars in cost to the typical house. But the roots of the problem go back much further, to the housing bubble collapse in 2008. What I call a bloodbath happened, says Klaus, who's a... Uh, contractor. It was the worst housing market crash since the Great Depression. Many home builders went out of business. Klaus was building houses in Florida when the bottom fell out. A lot of my tradespeople found other work, went and got retrained for new jobs in law enforcement, all sorts of jobs. So the workplace force was somehow decimated. So more cops, less construction workers, nobody right. to build the fucking houses that they want to have build, which is not right. a problem that you can lay on zoning or NIMBYs. That's right. B- because we, it's because there was a fraudulent like banking industry that existed to sell people's subprime loans on houses that were low quality, massive and built in in terrible locations. And when that fell apart, suddenly all of these people had to find something else to do. And you can't blame that on the fucking NIMBYs in San Francisco.
5: Right. I mean, there's all this conversation about funding as well as who is actually going to be able to afford it. Is it is it truly affordable in actuality?
3: Which it often winds up not being because like we we have there's like loopholes a lot like in Portland right now. There's a a building that's supposed to be affordable housing. But one of like the deals the city gets is they get or the the, gives the developers that they can increase rent at a greater rate than other places could. Right. uh, For a certain set amount of years, which like, yeah, it's all there's all these fucky ways that it like affordable housing winds up not being affordable. That is not due to zoning.
5: Or they just back out of this. So we had a whole project here called uh, the Atlanta Beltline, which is supposed to stretch around um, our metro area. And it was supposed to, Build up the city, have this walkable area, maybe get a rail station. I don't know. All these great things. But they had to buy out a lot of the areas, which is predominantly um, urban. And therefore, you know, it wasn't, it was redlined once upon a time and it's now valuable because it's within the city. So they bought out these houses, pushing people out. Hello. Um, but the deal they had was they were going to put in affordable housing as well. Mm-hmm. They did not. They actually backed out of the deal, oh, so, really? deal so much. The mm-hmm. originator, who uh, proposed this plan, created this huge plan that was going to be like a 30 year plan. It's still ongoing, by the way, multi million dollars from the city, so many things that they stepped down and said they were no longer a part of this project because it went so ugly and that people had to come back with, sorry, just kidding. We're not giving you this property back. We're just going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars without any going back to the city or the people who we promised that we would help. It oh, was bad.
3: Sh- shocking. Yeah. Surprise! I I mean yeah. That, that's that sounds like the way it tends to go. Um so yeah, we have this fucking financial crash, and home buying eventually slowly recovers after it, but building rates never do, right? They stay below normal after the crash. This continues for like, you know, more than a decade, because the workers simply aren't there to buy houses. So when millennials start to hit what should have been their prime home buying years, not only are houses more expensive than they had been, but there's less houses being built, and that's, again, it's it's just not due to zoning. It's the result of the home building industry tanking because a bunch of people who should be in prison sold and bundled up subprime loans, and then those same people go to people in the New York Times pretending to be experts and say, no, we got to change the zoning so I can develop cities more. And it's frustrating that that's the only argument you tend to fucking hear. Now, even then, even if you like... Because again, the 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 New York Times the angle here is not entirely wrong, but it also leaves a lot out. Even if you're just looking at their numbers, because the numbers we see that are like the U.S. is missing this many million homes, right? We're short three million homes or seven million homes. Are if not kind of fucky, which I would argue, then at least presented in a way that does not provide people with clarity as to what the numbers actually mean. When I say the U.S. is short three million homes, which is something you'll hear on the New York Times a lot, that suggests that like. Well, there's 3 million people who don't have who can't get housing because of sheer lack of availability. Right. Or at least, you know, X number of people, however many people fit into 3 million homes. And that's not really true. Uh, there's a lot of people where who have these, started. Yeah. Where are these where numbers are these coming homes? from? Uh, well, where are the, these
5: numbers? And who? I'm kind of confused. I'm like, who actually says, all right, I've gone and and taken uh, statistics and we figured out that, yes, this amount of people need this much many houses. But Do we actually have a number and how did it come up to that?
3: Yes, we're about to get to that. I'm going to talk to that because it it does not work the way you would think it does based on the way it tends to get summarized, right? Um, but yeah, there's there's folks who will argue just in general that the problem is not the way it's often presented. Kevin Drum is a writer for Mother Jones, and I think kind of on the more libertarian end of things with a lefty tinge. His big claim to fame is that he helped solidify the idea that there's a connection between the drop in violent crime and the removal of environmental lead, like getting lead out of gas. He's like the journalist who is big on that. And he points out that while construction never recovered after the 2008 crash, that's because the crash led to the bursting of. A housing bubble. And since housing mm-hmm. was indeed a bubble in that period, why would construction have returned to the rate that it was being added at when everyone lost their minds building trash houses as part of a shell game? Why right? right? Like maybe it's not it's not a the problem isn't that housing construction didn't return to previous levels because those levels were insane and fundamentally based on irrationality. Mm. Uh quote During the early aughts, housing supply grew far faster than population. After the bust, household formation caught up by around 2013. And since then, housing supply has matched household growth and has exceeded population growth. So do we have a housing shortage? Everyone keeps saying we do, and the housing groupies keep yelling at me that my chart is meaningless. But why? It sure looks right to me. By the way, I was browsing through some OECD stats the other day looking for healthcare information, and I happened to run into their league rankings for housing. Guess how we compare? Based on indicators such as rooms per house, basic facilities, and affordability, they rank us as number one in the entire OECD group of rich countries for the year 2020. We must be doing something right, and something wrong. According to the OECD, we rank second from last among housing affordability for low-income tenants. So... what he's saying is that, like, well, the evidence that like we're short on housing is weaker than the evidence that prices in housing are being jacked up and inflated. It's right. like the there is inflate. It's like with the grocery store, there is inflation that's affecting the price of your groceries. Those grocery stores are also making record profits because they have jacked right. up prices specifically to make more money with the cover of inflation. Um, right. Yeah, Drum's work is quoted favorably by Brian Potter, who works in the wonky side of the construction industry and writes a popular substack for weirdo construction nerds who want to know about things like why has wood gotten so expensive and why did agriculture mechanize and not construction? He Those are the kind of things he writes about. He's also a member of the Institute for Progress, which is a right-wing libertarian shaded think tank who pushed the idea that a lot of social and political policy should be tested by having prominent people tweet shit. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that I'm not going to totally back this guy up, but he certainly knows more about construction than me. He has an angle, which is why I Laid out what he writes for. But he does, he does a, the best job I've seen of, of answering the question of like, what does a statistic like we're three million houses short really mean? We'll start with some context. The U.S. has roughly 330 million people living in roughly 141 million homes, or about 0.42 homes per person. This puts the U.S. slightly below the OECD average of homes per capita. One thing worth noting about this is that previous rates of home building in the U.S. were partly driven by falling average household size. But there's a limit to how much average household size can fall. You can only add so many new households to a given population size. At the extreme end, you can't have more households than there are people. Average household size can can't be less than one. And in a world where A. Children live with their parents until they're 18 and B. Most people live with a romantic partner and C. The population isn't declining, is a world with a higher floor on how small the average household can get. What happens if this world changes to one where the average household size is two? In the final condition, you'll be building twice as many houses. If you add four people to the population, you're now building two homes instead of one. But to get to that second world, you need to build 100 additional houses. Even if this process takes years, Years, that's an extra two houses per year on top of the ones you're already building, which will temporarily juice your building rate. But once you work through that backlog, your building rate will drop off. Turning back to the real world, in 1960, the U.S. had a population of 180 million with an average household size of 3.33. By 1980, average household size had dropped to 2.76. This means that between 1960 and 1980, over 550,000 homes per year were needed just to keep up with changes in household size. By contrast, from 2001 to 2021, average household size only went from 2.56 to 2.51. We thus can't infer much from the fact that U.S. home building rates per capita are lower than they were in the past, because we would expect that to happen at some point soon regardless. Are you, are you, do you see what he's saying there?
5: explain it to me because i'm trying to keep up with all of these numbers yeah Yeah, this is very
3: this is this is this (laughs) is very wonky i don't know any other way to say it. but the the gist of what he's saying is the average from like the 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 60s to the 80s household sizes on average got smaller which means more people were living in more houses so there were fewer people on average per house Right. The that the number of like people per house by comparison barely changed at all from 2001 to 2021. So okay. we didn't it would have been unreasonable for the housing rate to continue at the same rate it had been from the 60s to the 80s because we were not like the household size was not decreasing by that much, right? The social changes that led to us having more smaller households had already happened. And so it would have been unnecessary housing to a large extent. Um, it's uh, you. You basically you can't infer a housing shortage by looking at housing construction rates in isolation, which a lot of people do. Um, and it's it's you know I I think the point here is that there's a lot of money in convincing you that this problem is simple and that the only thing to do is deregulate, right? If we deregulate construction, if we deregulate oh. zoning restrictions, that okay. will solve the problem, right? Right. And uh, and what what and obviously like Potter, I think is because he does conclude that like zoning changes are one aspect of helping with the uh, the crisis that we're in right now but the the thing that he and drum are both saying is that the people who are saying this is just about a lack of households or a lack of quote-unquote affordable households aren't actually looking at the numbers as they really exist they're they're taking like these kind of broad summaries um, and they're trying to torque the actual numbers to say something that they don't um in order to make a more a simple in order to present a simpler picture right and it's a picture mm-hmm. specifically it is a picture that re- reduces the problem and removes solutions like rent control and eviction moratoriums right, right? that's right. what's going on here um and, and uh, yeah it, there's there's a lot else uh one of the other major issues here is that and this is something that Potter points out when we're talking about missing housing we're not talking about a lack of houses like you'll hear a lot of people say there's x number of empty houses in the united states more than enough right. to and and that is true but that's not necessarily vacant housing right vacant housing is housing that is on the market and available for people to purchase uh, okay. and right now the us does have a historically low vacancy rate so there are fewer houses like per capita fewer houses available for people to rent than there have mm-hmm. been in the past even though there's plenty of actual empty houses because right. if those houses aren't available to be rented they're not vacant and a big reason why there's so much empty housing that is not technically vacant is airbnb right. um, yep yeah so that is a major <gasps> factor here Wait for me yeah yeah and we're <laughs> going to talk about that but first you know what's not airbnb
4: i hope not maybe it's super awkward <laughs> any
3: of our sponsors uh probably sophie are we sponsored by airbnb not
4: Ooh, that we would awkward. have not that we would have approved or signed off on but like we don't as Great. You know, we don't have control do of the random ad ads so if it's randomly an airbnb ad yeah That's look if
3: you ironic. if you hear here's what i'll say if you hear an airbnb ad on the podcast um Find your nearest Airbnb rental and huck a Molotov cocktail through the window. Whether or not there's people inside, it doesn't matter to us.
4: Legally, this is a joke. Yep. <laughs> Just gonna send in the background
5: here.
3: Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine.
4: Set something on fire today. Let's yeah. go. I feel like uh, I feel like that mean of everything's no? fine with the dog in the fire. That's yeah. my face right now. Everything's fine. That is your
5: face right now. You know what? Fine. I'm gonna
4: enjoy
3: this moment. Robert.
0: more info now.
3: Oh gosh, what a great day to be an American. We're Said back. No one ever. Well, <laughs>
4: oh. I don't know.
3: I did when I watched Ooh. those Philly fans sliding down those greased-up light poles. Every time I see Philadelphia oh, celebrate anything, I'm proud to be an American. I,
4: I was proud of the, uh, uh, new, new, the the New Yorkers at the yeah. uh, Yankees-Astros uh, game that heckled Ted Cruz. If you ever that seen that video, mm-hmm. it's heartwarming. proud of that,
3: too. And I'm proud of Forbes for reporting on how bad Airbnbs are for housing Ooh. vacancy rates. Uh, and I'm going to quote from them now. Research conducted by the Harvard Business Review across the U.S. found that Airbnb is having a detrimental impact on the housing stock as it encourages landlords to move their properties out from the long-term rental and for-sale markets into the short-term rental market. A separate U.S. study found that a 1% increase in Airbnb listings leads to a 0.018 increase in rents and a 0.026 increase in house prices. It may not seem like much on the surface, but there's a cost creep for those looking to rent long-term or buy. So, it's just... Again, I'm not saying the Times is wrong when they say that NIMBYs are part of the problem we have here, but be cautious whenever somebody talks about the housing shortage issue and just throws that out there or just frames it as a housing shortage issue, right, rather than a costs are creeping up because a bunch of different kinds of capitalists are finding new ways to fuck people, which is the thing that's actually happening. Yeah. Um, Another thing that's happening is that rent like the rent surge and like the way it looks and stuff and the fact that the fact that the rent surge is being attributed to a lack of like housing construction and whatnot and zoning issues, um, that's heavily skewed by outlier cities by San Francisco. In other words, rent is increasing everywhere, right? Everyone mm-hmm. in every city is dealing with rent prices that are surging. Rent prices that are, are surging in San Francisco and a couple of other big cities because of zoning issues. But rent prices in Atlanta or in Houston are not necessarily surging because of those issues, but because of how big like San Francisco and New York are and how much it, 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 they're outliers and they fuck the data up. And so the Mm -hmm. picture they present in large is not accurate to why is most people's rent raising, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote again from Potter's analysis here. There is essentially zero correlation. The metros with the largest rent increases had added population and added housing ratios no different than metros with smaller rent increases. For exa- for instance, between 2001 and 2019, the San Francisco Bay Area added around 336,000 people, but only built 94,000 new housing units. This gives an added population added housing ratio of about 3.54, much higher than both the national and regional average household size. This seems like it would indicate many more households than homes got added, which we'd expect to push prices up, and indeed, San Francisco saw a rent increase of over 53% during this period, one of the highest in the country. The problem? The Atlanta metro area saw almost the same added population over added housing ratio, but it had a much lower rent increase. Atlanta added 653,000 people over the same time period, and only built 186,000 homes, for an added population added housing ratio of 3.51. And Miami added almost 500,000 people, but only 98,000 homes, for an added population housing ratio of over 5. But Atlanta and Miami saw rent increases of just 22% and 17% respectively. So again it's just not as simple as that number alone. And I, I don't know I'm probably harping on this too much so we're, we're going to get out of the number shit now. Uh, I, I, I apologize. Oh, I just wanted to make the point that the people who just say this is all about zoning, this is all about housing construction, are trying to fuck you. Right? Right. Like they are trying to enable others to fuck you and you should not take them at their word.
5: I, I mean this is the classic trick in trying yeah. to blame someone else so that the people who are actually profiting and making the most money look innocent. Kind of like the whole recycling bit. We know, we know it, like they try to blame the individual instead of realizing these huge corporations are fucking over the environment, yeah. but they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to lose money. So no, this is no. how we're going to rescope scope this.
3: Yeah, we're going to we're going to scope this as like there's too much regulation, not like yeah, but you guys are also jacking the prices up. Right? right, like you're you're also like you're also like colluding to fuck people over by right. yeah, a, a, anyway, and you're doing shit like Airbnb. Like you've done a butt capitalists have found a bunch of different ways to fuck with housing in the last fifteen years, and it's right. not just a construction issue or like, a zoning they're issue. They're basically anyway.
4: saying that rent's high because of the, the lack of qual- quantity of, of places available but like that's no. really not the case it's no otherwise it right. would be
3: raising at similar rates in these other cities where the numbers are even worse I understand the
4: math that's awesome I yeah. love that from yeah. So yeah, good. yeah 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 that's so
3: good anyway yeah. you can it whatever um I I uh, <laughs> It, fuck, rent fuck is high rent th- is, oh
4: you wrote that in your script yeah. rent is too damn high rent is, is too rent damn is high, high. Yeah.
3: and there's a number of reasons for it and anyone trying to say it's this one simple thing that is also really good for developers is probably trying to fuck you so right. now we're going to start talking about assholes which is fun Let's um, go. and, oh, I'm and more more our strong suit than numbers so the first thing you need to know about or the first person you need to know about is a guy named Jeffrey Roper Jeffrey is a mm. businessman who describes himself as a numbers nerd and formerly worked as Alaska Airlines' director of revenue management in the 1980s. Now, anybody
4: anybody who says they're a numbers guy to you? Yeah, dislike him immediately. I don't know. I
3: like I like my accountant, my, yeah, uh, my but the guy who n- does my taxes. Somebody, but if
4: somebody like if that's their first thing that they want you to know about them, red flag.
3: Red flag. Right flag. Of red flag. Do not flags. date
4: that person. Okay. Also, Ooh.
3: having the last name Roper that makes me think of the guy who used to be Ebert's friend and probably killed him. Oh, that's my head. If cannon. they
4: mention anything about wow. like their credit, yeah, credits, a throwback. Okay, I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying, if they mention anything about their credit score. If they mention anything about numbers, if they mention anything like that in their dating profile. Do not match with them wait it's have you weird. had someone girl put their credit score oh my then... gosh yeah more really more, more when i was uh, more when wow. i was living in los angeles but uh okay yeah that was a thing maybe Atlantis. <laughs> probably, oh, probably. Maybe Atlantis
5: are not impressive so therefore they leave it out on purpose
3: i don't know
4: because <laughs> yeah. i did not see that that's
3: a new one
5: to me so, all
4: right robert tell us about uh the numbers guy roper the numbers, numbers guy. nerd
3: Our money is what we're calling him, actually. Our Um, money. Okay, tell us about our money. Yeah, yeah. So he's a numbers nerd. He used to work as Alaska Airlines' director of revenue management in the 1980s. And look, Alaska is like the least shitty domestic airline that we have. Right. Great.
4: Great great airline.
3: But when Roper was there, dragging people uh, off the plane, so. Yeah, they don't do that now. Uh, I will say this. (laughs) They absolutely, uh, while Roper was director of revenue management, robbed us all of about a billion dollars back in the 1980s. So we're going to talk about how that happens. Like, robbed us consumers, like, stole illegally, criminally stole a billion dollars. It's cool. Yeah, so comp- they're not the only—actually, a number of airlines stole collectively a billion, but Alaska was kind of leading the pack. Anyway, competing airlines—what happened is competing airlines started using price-setting software, and their different computers would all kind of share data on planned routes and prices with each other to make sure that, like, nobody was undercutting anyone else. And Jeffrey was a big part of this. He brings in price-setting software to Alaska, and he helps set up this system, which— it they're very happy with because it helps avoid a price war in the 1980s and when you frame it as a price war it sounds like oh they avoided a price war with this software that's good no it's yeah. not what a price war is is companies competing to give you the best price so that's that you will choose their service right it's okay. good for consumers when a price war occurs when you avoid a price war it means you're getting fucked <laughs> right
5: Price war amongst each other, so mm-hmm. they cannot have to compete for yeah. businesses unless no. they're in, like, I'm guessing they're doing like the prices right type of where there's just a dollar less. Every well, yeah, time. I mean, yeah.
3: That, that, well, that normally what would happen is you would not, it would kind of be a little bit of a black box and they would set their rates just based on this is what we think is fair and then kind of over time as they see what consumers are choosing, you know, they're like, maybe we need to lower our rates or maybe we can raise them a little. What they're doing with these softwares is they're all communicating with each other to be like, this is what we are charging. Oh, we can all afford to charge more. So the prices just start raising and just start raising and just start raising, right? Price wars occur when corporations fight to lower prices while still staying profitable. Um, This is good, broadly speaking, for consumers. If capitalism worked the way my high school textbook said it did, then this this would be an example of why it's a good system, right? But that's not what happens. What really happens is that companies like these airlines do things called, do so what's called price fixing, which is illegal. Alaska under, well, you know, the system that Roper helped set up is illegal price fixing. The Department wow. of Justice says these companies are all illegally fixing prices. I'm not like declaring this price fixing because I don't like it. The Department of Justice says they, they did a crime.
5: Did anybody actually get
3: Punished? Absolutely not. Well, a little okay. bit. So, a little the, bit. A little the bit. DOJ okay. accuses Alaska and several other airlines of artificially in, inflating prices using the system, which costs taxpayers about a billion dollars between 1988 and 19 or 92. The government gets settlements uh, and consent decrees out of eight airlines, including Alaska, which is like, again, when you're a big company, and you have lawyers. Nobody goes to prison for this shit. Right. Sometimes you You kick the government some money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Now, during this investigation, federal agents remove a computer and documents from Roper's office. Because, again, he's kind of one of the ringleaders of this. He will later claim in an interview, quote, We all got called up before the Department of Justice in the early 1980s because we were colluding. We had no idea. Of, no of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, sure, buddy. Yes, I'm. I'm certain you. You had no didn't idea know what that was. Oh my God, we were price fixing. <laughs> I didn't know all our price fixing was price fixing. I didn't know how we got no all that idea. money. It was yeah. odd. Seemed like we were just making a lot of money. We were just so, so good. Okay. It's very funny that he says that. Um, nobody gets really punished. Again, whatever whatever settlements they make are kind of slap on the wristy. After this, Roper leaves the United States for Central and Eastern Europe to fuck with people's lives in post-Soviet Europe. He's, he's helping. Obviously. He's one of these Casual. capitalists who goes over there because he's like, oh, yeah. gonna, <laughs> there's a lot of money to be made in setting the stage for Vladimir Putin's rise to power by... Fucking with all these newly privatized industries and siphoning money and access to future money away from any kind of like regular people or social safety net that might be built which will create ideal grounds for authoritarianism anyway it's whatever it's good stuff so he made money don't worry about it. he makes a lot of money doing this and then he gets back to the u.s and he's like you know what i realize the u.s apartment rental industry is stuck in the past it looks like these emerging markets over in europe you know it's uh it's old-fashioned it's too slow And the thing that he finds that really disgusts him is that apartment managers are, quote, basically pricing their product on a paper napkin, which he seems to have found viscerally offensive. Now, what's going on here is that, to some extent, renting is more of a human business back then. So people are like... Coming in and sitting down and their landlord saying, well, like, this is what it, And you know, there's haggling and stuff and back and forth. And, you know, if you've ever haggled with a small landlord or gotten one to give you a break because, like, shit got fucked up in your life, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right. You can say what you will about how inherently predatory, you know, landlording is or isn't or whatever. But, like, at the end of the day, it's better when you can be a human being sitting across the table from another human being um, because sometimes that matters, right? Like Sometimes sometimes like little small landlords can be extent. shitty and terrible too but as a general rule i always i every time i had to lease from a huge company i found them monolithic slow to respond to problems and cruel in their application of things like fees and penalties where i was able yeah. to like talk shit out of little landlords and and you know not that i never had a, yeah. a small landlord fucking steal shit from me but if i prefer one situation to the other right, right
5: I think out of the 20, yeah. 20 years that I rented one, one was yeah. a big corporation and I hated it.
3: It fucking sucks. I yeah. want to at least be able to call my goddamn landlord on the phone and get a person and deal with a problem. You know,
5: well, I also had the age old problem where uh, the guy who came to fix things, a maintenance man, was hitting on me. So I had a fear that he was going to uh, just come into my house. So yeah, yeah no,
4: I, I had I, <laughs> there I, was that. I, I had a, the the handyman my last my last one <sighs> didn't hit on me. No, no, no. He would lecture. He would come in and lecture me about life choices and tell me about uh, you know, he was just really misogynistic. It was see, oh, I it had was worse. Totally I know, opposite. I, I think experience. be worse. I think it's it's <laughs> equally bad.
3: I had a gloriously opposite experience. And so when I was renting a slum, uh, it was legally zoned servants' quarters. It was one room. I lived in it with two other men um, falling apart. Uh, The ceiling collapsed on me while I was showering. (laughs) <laughs> um, and the next day, I call the landlord, and I'm like, "Hey, <laughs> the ceiling fell in on me while I was showering." You waited until the and next like, day. Wait well, I, it was like nighttime. I sh- I okay, tend to shower like I guess. it was like it was, like, night. It was like ten at <laughs> <a> night something <laughs> right. like that. Immediately, um, I don't remember if I called him. Maybe I called immediately and he wasn't around. Anyway, I get I okay, get okay. in touch with him, and he's like, "I'll get uh, I'll get my guy right over." So he sends over a repairman, and he's just kind of this like old hippie looking dude, and he comes over and he looks up at the hole, and he's like yeah we're not gonna be able to fix this for a while and then he says do you want to buy some weed and I said (laughs) yes and he was selling $50 ounces of pretty solid popcorn that's like Um, miz it was good it It was a good deal it was worth it. It was like several months where we didn't have a ceiling over the shower, but, but you had good weed. It was a pretty good weed hookup. We were poor as <laughs> shit, so a fifty dollar ounce of mids—that's not a bad deal, you know. Wow, well,
5: it must be wonderful to have again. Such a you don't get index.
3: that. You don't get that experience with a big corporate <laughs> 100% landlord. One
4: hundred percent. That's
3: the kind of landlord you get when your landlord is yeah, breaking a number of different laws, but basically chill. Um, yeah. Look, again, this is, I, yeah, again, you can have whatever Marxist opinions you want to have on landlords. I'm talking about like from a human being perspective, it's always better to deal with a person than a giant edifice. So whatever, um, Jeffrey Roper's entire business attitude revolves around making that kind of thing where like, if you're living on the margins, you can kind of skate by because you're able to like. Talk to someone on a human level. He wants to make that impossible, right? Because that that is a barrier to profits. No In compassion, 2000- empathy. Exactly, allowed. exactly. <laughs> you have predicted where we're going here. So. <laughs> In 2004, he gets hired by a company called RealPage as its principal scientist. They bought software from Camden Property Trust, which is a large owner of apartment buildings that was supposed to help them maximize profits. Now, previously, back in the napkin days, we'll call them, even big corporate apartment managers had kind of been left to guess. You know, they, they, they even if you were working with a big corporation, it was still kind of like... Eventually, some guy's going to sit down and just kind of guess what he thinks he can get out of you, right? Um, Roper knew that he could do better, just as he'd done at Alaska, by introducing machines and price-fixing to the— Well, legally not price-fixing yet, although it might prove to be price-fixing in the future. We'll see what the DOJ says. But legally, he has not committed price-fixing in the rental industry to an extent that has been proven. I'm going to quote from a ProPublica investigation. Roper quickly realized he required data, a lot of data, to get the algorithm r- working properly. He began building a master data warehouse that pulled in client data from other real-page applications, such as those for leasing managers. A proof of concept version of the software had performed well in tests at townhouses. Camden offered for rent in its home city in the, of Houston. At the time, the, t- the street behind Camden's townhouses was shut down while a grocery store was being built. Leasing staff wanted to discount rent for the townhouses because of the nuisance, said Kip Zacharias, who worked with Camden as a consultant. Instead, Yieldstar, which is the company that's selling the software, suggested boosting rents. We were like, guys, just try it, Zacharias said. The units ended up renting for significantly more than staff had expected. He said, that was kind of the Eureka moment. If you'd listened to your gut, you would have lowered your price. Such agents sometimes hesitated to push prints higher. Roper said they were often peers of the people they were renting to. We said there's way too much empathy going on here. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to get pricing off site. Unimpeded by human worries, Yieldstar's price increases sometimes yet led to more tenants leaving. So he's literally is saying what you were saying. There's too much empathy (laughs) in the process as it exists. We got to get rid of that shit so we can really fuck people.
5: Right, right. Like, we, we need to get rid of the human aspect. I like yeah. that part too. That's if like, a, don't be human. If you're What's a small fuck, landlord man?
3: or if you're just a person at a leasing office with discretion and a, a person comes in and they're like, you know, they remind you of your mom or your aunt, your cousin, or your friend, or like, you know, you have a good rapport with them. They're like, yeah, I want to make sure you get a good deal. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll work. Again, I've had that happen to me. Um, it's, it's like, this is... And and the system, by the way, that system, the one I'm describing, was not idyllic. It was still bad. Rent was still too high. But this has made it much worse. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So
5: he's the one that began like, no, really, every year you should increase by 15% and they'll never question it.
3: We just do it to every single person uniformly. And then, you know, nobody's, it's not personal. This is just the, the 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 price of housing now. And this is just the way that it works. And, you know, we're just right. trying to, we found that you're underneath the, uh, the, the, and this is what it means also when, like, you get that letter saying, you know, your house is underpriced or lower than, like, right. market value or whatever. So we have to increase it by X amount. That's, That's what the value part. they're quoting on is the shit that this software hands them.
5: Which is not necessarily a real thing. It is a made-up prediction by this machine.
3: It is a thing that the machine calculated by doing (laughs) a machine version of price-fixing that, again, as of yet, has not been ruled to be price-fixing by the DOJ, but may prove to be ruled price-fixing by the DOJ in the near future. We'll see.
5: Real soon? Okay. Yeah.
3: Camden noted their turnover was about 15% higher in 2006 after it started using Yieldstar, which is, again, that's the software that Roper is, is, is managing. Despite this, revenue grew by 7.4%. So 15% of their co- of their clients like leave the apartments that they're in um, or 50% more of the uh, clients leave their apartments that year, like don't renew their leases, but revenue still grows. And that all sounds fine when you treat it like numbers, right? That like, right. oh, we had more turnover than Nomer, but revenue still grew. But that 15% of tenants who turned over includes people who got evicted because they couldn't pay their rent and people who had to leave a neighborhood or even a city they loved because they'd been priced out. And it also, the added rent that these people paid, the reason why profits were still up, means money those tenants aren't spending elsewhere, money they're not saving for a house themselves or contributing right. to the local economy, rather than pumping more cash into a massive corporation whose shareholders all live far. Away from the communities where this decision is impacted. Right. R- yep. Rick Campo of Camden Property Trust is one of the people who doesn't see things this way. He summarized the impact of Yield Star like this The net effect of driving revenue and pushing people out was $10 million in income. I think that shows that keeping the heads and beds above all else is not always the best strategy. Wait, what? yeah, man, we put some people on the street, but we made $10 million. <laughs> Fuck them people. It's funny. So ProPublica does this big investigation, and they're the ones who bust this story. They they find this quote from Campo where he's like, heads in beds, fuck it. Uh, and they're like, heads hey, this, this wow. kind of makes you sound like a monster.
5: Kind of? I think could just take out the gonna, kind
3: of. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to quote from the, their article. Campo told ProPublica it sounds awful and doesn't reflect how he or Camden views renters today. We fundamentally believe our customers are the most important part of the business, he said. We're not about pushing people out. Of course you think customers are important. They're the ones you're jacking money from. Like, customers are important to Camden the way somebody with a nice watch is important to a man with a handgun and a fucking desire to get a fix by robbing him at gunpoint like yeah that guy is important to him the liquor store i might rob later tonight is important to me
5: this is that same level of like child uh, training children to work and and you're like
3: yeah this
5: is not what you think it is And, and their excuse of like no but if the children didn't work for low wages their family wouldn't have any money so yeah, they're doing, see? we're
3: doing a good see? thing. See, we're doing a good thing. We're helping them out. <laughs> um, <laughs> All good. All good. Yeah, it's 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 ghoul logic. And it's I also I don't want to I don't want to be unfair here and compare a guy like Rick Campo to somebody who robs people at gunpoint or holds up liquor stores because that individual mm-hmm. robbing people at gunpoint or holding up liquor stores, mm-hmm. that's honest work, right? You know? There you go. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, that's no, no, no. Un, it's goes. unfair oh, okay. to the guy oh, okay. with the 38. To the yeah. person who is desperate yeah. and trying
5: to get yes. anything. Yes. All right, I got you now. I'll take that flip. Yeah. I'll um, take
4: that flip.
3: Accept and again, it. that's a human interaction. As a general, that's you can probably talk so, your way out of the worst of parts of that, right?
5: Yes. Yeah. There's more compassion <laughs> there. Yeah, right. it's You're not right. an
3: algorithm deciding whether or not you get stuck up, you know.
5: because you know it's not heads and beds.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of heads and beds, we sell a lot of mattresses on this podcast. <laughs> we
4: do, but I have yet to get one. Yeah, yeah, they don't give it out like they used to. That's what I'll say. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
4: sounds so bougie. Let's get to yep. those. ads.
3: 2024 we're back ah uh, good times so campo rick campo by the way asshole name that's a jerk Obviously. ass right you can tell fucking rick campo yeah. you know yeah. rick your job is selling timeshares in florida to elderly people with dementia who don't know where they are like I mean, that's what you do Rick racist, Campo. Uh,
5: radio personality that just screams at people and then yeah. tries to yeah. pretend <laughs> like he's not a racist asshole yeah.
3: yeah Rick Campo the guy whose job is to get up at 6 a.m. and say the n-word before playing right. a right. fucking mm. Blink 182 <laughs> song <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> Um so obviously he says that they're not about pushing people out but that is objectively what the software did and it began to take off like wildfire in the real estate industry which led to articles about it like this in the landlord focused news website yield pro yields is the profits you jack out of people for housing which they will die the dad, without yeah yeah okay uh so here's them writing about this positively Equity Residential, which completed installation of LRO, so LRO is the other kind of software, there's Yieldstar and there's LRO, there's the two, and they both do the same, they're both competing, at this point, competing software, so it's talking about okay. both of them. Equity Residential, which complete, completed installation of LRO across, across its 165,716 unit portfolio in Q4, 2006, found it extremely useful through the turning point in the apartment market. We've raised rents hundreds of dollars in some markets, and I don't think people on site, given the way we'd trained them to think about pricing, would have had the courage to push it as aggressively as this program has, CEO David Neithercut told panelists during a Deutsche Bank conference in January. Keith Oden, Camden Property Trust president and COO, agreed. It's not in their DNA to raise pricing $150 to $200 per unit on a lease turn, he said. Camden completed rollout of Yieldstar across its 64,384-unit portfolio in Q4, 2005. Both Camden and Equity so far report 1% to 2% lifts to net operating income that they attribute to the use of Yieldstar and LRO, respectively. And again, this is the very start of it because these these algorithms, the way they work like any other algorithm, they get more effective at the thing they do the more often they do it, the more data they get, right? So that's, again, they get better at raising rent by more the longer they're doing it.
5: And the more they, I'm guessing, the more they are renting, like raising the prices yep. as it gets higher and higher. They're going to yeah. use that as a factor. it raises the, the all new of the average start. prices
3: everywhere else, right? Because again, okay. they're price fixing, but not legally. So don't sue Shh. us. Um, oh yeah, I
5: just wanted you to say everything that you named—the corporations, the individuals—are all yeah. the bad guys in history of the world yep. right now. So I'm yes. like, oh, this is yes. bad.
3: Yeah, these are the bad guys. Yes. So, if you are currently in an apartment complex and you've seen your rent rise by a surprising amount, you might want to look into whether or not your landlord uses LRO or yield star. And while many companies don't use these programs, the fact that they're in use in major markets increases pricing for everybody. As one real estate executive told Yield Pro in 2007, a rising tide lifts all boats. The way Jeffrey Roper sees it, landlords who don't jack their prices up are ripping off all the other landlords. Quote, If you have idiots undervaluing, it costs the whole system. Which is the same uh-huh. logic that uh-huh. led to the price fixing kerfuffle uh-huh. with the airlines, right? Yeah.
5: My cool. face is turning red. My it, face is
4: turning red in this
5: dark void of mine. Yeah. My face is turning. This red. This is why you why? don't touch anybody
4: who says they're a, uh, a numbers nerd because no, they do and it's it's one of like those is. things.
3: If you've got, if this guy's logic is being, I don't know, if he's like, works for a company that makes premium bourbon, right? And like, he's he's applying this logic to like, get the most profits out of people who want to buy nice bourbon, whatever, right? Like, it's discretionary. Income. People die if they don't have housing. <laughs> like, yeah, Good, that's uh,
5: look, Safe housing. Can we put that housing. as the Safe housing, yes, marker? yeah. Because a lot of these houses that are for rent, who are with the uh, you know more personable, are probably not in a safe area. Yes, they're fire
3: hazards like half of the houses I lived (laughs) in when I was a renter.
5: Exactly, (laughs) like there's so many things that can happen, and you're like, you literally are giving up safety. For the price, once again, as you had said yeah. you're like, you know, I'm living in a place that I'm doesn't fucking, have a I lived oh, in a
3: nice neighborhood for fucking nothing, you know, or not then. That was not a particularly nice neighborhood.
5: But <laughs> not not the, later on, yes. We dude, not the We Connect. No, it was okay.
3: Um, so the the way Jeffrey Roper sees it. Yeah, so anyway, initially Roper's competition in this horrible business was LRO, or lease rent options, right? I quoted about them earlier. But Yieldstar purchased LRO in 2017 with the Justice Department's acquiescence. They were flagged for high-level review, but ultimately passed. Surprise. ProPublica writes, the approval allowed RealPage to acquire its only significant competitor, Roper said, adding, I was surprised the DOJ let that go through. So 2017 saying, is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, 2017. Really? Were you
5: really surprised? Yeah. I feel like those like organizations bought that a long time I mean, ago like that- ability
3: that should tell you what a fucking scam this is, right? That, like, even (laughs) he's being like, yeah, man, I can't believe they didn't call that price-fixing. I can not believe they said that wasn't monopolistic behavior. We did it. It's fucked up what we did. (laughs) So RealPage was pricing one and a half million units, and the acquisition of LRO would double that. Uh, Steve Wynn, RealPage's CEO, at the point at that point, said in a 2017 investor conference, I don't think there's any concentration, enough concentration, of buying or pricing power here to warrant the DOJ stepping in. Um, yeah, so, that's cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, they made a lot of money. Real Pages influence, uh, that year. Like, um, they have uh, a lot of money. the firm's target market uh, was multifamily buildings with five or more units um made up 19 million of the nation's 45 million rental units um and a huge share of those buildings were owned by firms backed by Wall Street investors who were the first right. adopters of this pricing software right so he is okay. he is specifically going to jack up the pricing of like housing for families that is tradition like should have been more affordable, right? Like he's hes actually directly, this business directly is targeting and jacking up the prices of what we call affordable housing. Again- Not all a zoning issue. So RealPage renamed its combined pricing software AI Revenue Management, and by the end of 2020, the firm was reporting in an SEC commission filing uh, that its clients used its services and products to manage 19.7 million rental units of all types, including single-family homes. Uh, The private equity firm Toma Bravo brought the company public a few months later for $10.2 billion. And again it's all this that's all that's enough to affect everyone right 20 million housing units that's enough to raise everybody's rent price and so by god it has
5: named camden so are you yeah. talking about the camden apartment complexes
3: that are everywhere yes yes okay okay yeah yep. like, they're the I guys who like, brought this okay. monster software into the that's world what yeah. I'm trying, like i you hear have now, all I'm of like, the people fucking listening probably live in a camden oh, building right there mm-hmm. burn yep. it down y'all yeah, burn, burn, <laughs> just, kidding, burn just it kidding. down, burn it down.
5: Sorry, Sophie, I didn't yeah. need to add to this. Um,
3: it's it, yeah, it's cool. So cool, cool. The good, the good stuff is that I don't know. Um, basically, the attitude these companies were able to realize because of this software is that previously. Even though they'd all always wanted to get as much money as they could out of people, the number one priority was keeping occupancy full, right? So we'll make deals with people. We'll cut prices if we can get another person another unit, right? Because the worst thing is an empty unit, right? An empty Mm unit is just a a total waste of, of money. This software and Roper comes in, and Roper's attitude is, no, it's not empty units are fine as long as we're jacking up the prices of other units more. If we have right. to keep more units empty as long as we're getting more total money out of the the built the complex, that's all that fucking matters. Um and what this actually means in In reality is that people are winding up on the street or they're being forced to move or forced to double and triple up somewhere else just to survive. And profits still raise for the company because everyone who gets to stay in housing is just getting bilked for more money. In one analysis ProPublica did, if a building owned by a company that used Yieldstar next door to a building that didn't, rent for the Yieldstar building rose 42% uh, since 2012 uh, as opposed to 33%. So like these are substantial increases. And you got to also admit... Or, or note that like the average in that, like the gap between yield star and non-Yield Star buildings is is higher because the average rental price is also being affected by the fucking Yield Star price, right? Right. Like right. it's not just that Yield Star buildings are higher than non, it's that they're raising rental prices for everybody because the whole market is surging. Even, so, yeah.
5: Because that's the conversation is that, yeah, these like, well, I say that this, this all-inclusive maintenance apartment complexes, they have their steady prices with no negotiations. But even though they're significantly higher, whatever you are paying with these mom and pop landlords is still going to increase because no matter what, even if it was like, let's say it's cheap $800, going $1,200 is still significantly cheaper than the $1,800 apartment that you, that's gone in. So it sounds cheaper, which is what's happened everywhere.
3: Yeah, because the problem is that
5: I left. Literally, is cheaper than everywhere in Atlanta, but it still mm -hmm. went up forty percent.
3: Exactly. So everything's good. Is it? Yeah, that's not the definition of good, good. Robert. Um, Things are fine. We should. Everything's fine. It should always be acceptable to turn things that to turn pricing for things that people die without into right. a fucking algorithm game just yeah. like everything else that's terrible in our society. Um I nothing should making matter people die
5: and yeah. sa- like risk, risk their safety for a white men to be get, continue to get rich. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I it, love it, that. It, that's my it, favorite like, thing to do.
3: You know, it's not just white men. You have to assume they're not all white, you know? Okay. Uh, so that's fine. That's true, that's true. Yeah. It's good. So anyway, <laughs> uh we're going to talk about an even more entertaining piece of shit next episode and we're going to talk oh, about uh some other important stuff including uh uh what call it? uh rent control. Uh oh. but yeah, that's that uh, that's, still? those are hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, in some places although yeah, there's some fuckery going on there too. But yeah, this is uh th- these are s- some of the assholes who have made rent be so damn high. Oh, and also Robert, the assholes the assholes who because the assholes in this that you know roper is the one we're really digging into in this episode but other assholes are just like all of the journalists who blithely report like well experts say there's just not enough housing and we have to change zoning it's like no 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 not that that's not part of the issue but don't pretend that's everything that's That's going on you fucking dishonest pricks
5: i'm gonna have to go run or Mm -hmm. something what do i what do i do
3: yeah. Um, I don't know. Go rent a house. Go, everybody go out and sign a mm, lease.
4: I quit. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
5: Samantha, so, right, do you yeah, have anything know.
4: you want to you want to plug? Oh,
5: sure. Um. <laughs> let, let me gather my thoughts. Yes, you can Uh, come find me at my podcast with uh, Annie Stuff Mom Never Told You. If you like to talk about feminist issues where you want to rage about how... The U.S. hate women. Um, a lot of people hate women, and apparently, in general. And those who identify as female, you know, they think they do, essentially. Or any uh, issues dealing with those who identify as female, come on over. Listen to us. Um, yeah. Also, you can find me on Instagram, Sam or on Twitter, I believe McVeigh. Samantha. Yay, yeah. You can Yay. see pictures of my dog. Well. Love that.
3: Go with Christ, my children.
4: And we'll be back for for part two on Thursday. Hell yeah.
3: Well, maybe.
4: What just happened?
2: Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, bye.
4: Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
2: 2024.
1: 18 plus.